Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is... 
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. I am Enzo the Baker. <laughs> we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off our last full series of the year with one of our favorites, Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 film, The Godfather. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. If you've ever thought it might be time to get out of the olive oil business, then grab your cannoli and join us for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's check in with Games Master Stephen Smart, who's currently hiding out in Sicily after knocking off a local drug kingpin and crooked cop to find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Odd Couple from 1968. Directed by Gene Sachs, written by Neil Simon and starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Congrats to at Brendo61 who guessed it on Image 5. You're entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys and see you later. And we've got a Blot Spot front of the show. Ben Lott has written in with his rebound on uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. That's right. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is a well-made film featuring two brilliant performances. It reminded me a lot of Misery, but the fact that the lead characters were sisters changed the stakes. The way we slowly see Jane's psychosis grow is downright disturbing, and the final scene is a great twist because it changes the nature of everything that happened up to that point. Your rank 159, my rank 57. I feel like the Betty Davis series actually did pretty well with old Ben Lott overall. I think it did. I think it did. I think I'd have to go back and look at them. But I feel like uh, I feel like they all, except for maybe the Little Foxes, but I think all of them ranked in the in the fifties or so, didn't they? Uh, y- yeah, I believe so. Which is good because nobody else cared. <laughs> I'm looking, I was looking at our download numbers, and man, when he, we hit Betty Davis, boom. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I know, right? People, come That's on. I, if anything deserves the title of, wait, wait, hear me out. It's Betty Davis. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Oh, man. Right. So anyway, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I, I guess I have every reason to believe that this this film should be lovely. My trailer is for Silence, the first trailer for Scorsese's passion film. Uh, this is he's been working on this one for what what is it twenty six years I think since nineteen ninety. Oh dear, he's been tra- trying to make this movie, and um, you know, uh, it it's yeah. It's great. I mean, it it stars Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver and Liam Neeson, uh, and a, a number of other wonderful actors, uh, uh, Shinya Tsukamoto and Yosuke Kubozuka, uh, uh, along with a fantastic Japanese cast. It is a story of uh, Portuguese Jesuit priests who go to Japan uh, during the period of Kakure Kirishitan, the hidden Christians, and face a great deal of violence in in Japan. Uh, as they attempt to to both spread Christianity and rescue a fellow Jesuit priest who went AWOL. It's a it's a bold movie. I mean, the trailer to me looks really bold. And I, it, you know, the word I was using today as I was thinking about it, it's, it, it looks indelicate, right? I mean, there is a sense of just kind of force, even in the spirit of of what is generally perceived as visually uh, visually fine and and delicate. This is an indelicate trailer, and these people in it, 
you know, Driver and Garfield, I think they look great. I am, is it weird that I'm naturally just sort of skeptical of a film project that that has taken quite so long and has been shelved so many times? I mean, back in 2009, uh, we were told that Benicio Del Toro and Daniel Day-Lewis were were in the headlining roles. And if if those two guys couldn't come together to get enough mojo behind it, if, if they were distracted by other projects, like what was Del Toro's The Wolfman? <laughs> then <laughs> am I not right to be a little bit skeptical? Anyway, oh what? Oh how did this trailer hit you? Are you more optimistic than I am? Well, it's Scorsese, so I like to always be optimistic with Scorsese films, but I know he did Gangs of New York, and that was kind of a passion project for him that he had been trying to get made for a very long period of time. And I know it was received relatively well, but it was relatively underwhelming for me. I really yeah. didn't care for that much. Um um, I likewise, uh, what was, um, uh, the director of toys? Uh, I can't remember who directed that. It was, um, oh, Barry Levinson. Oh my goodness. Levinson. Barry yeah. Levinson was behind uh. that. And that was a passion project that he'd been trying to get off the ground for a very, very long time. Sometimes I feel like these passion projects that people get behind and they take so long to get made. I feel like there's sometimes a reason why maybe it shouldn't <laughs> be made. And so that certainly has me a little uh, skeptical about silence. Um, you're right. I think everything about it looks interesting. Um, it has an interesting cast. I uh, certainly hope it is something that is going to succeed. But um, but it doesn't strike me immediately as, ooh, 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 I can't wait to go see that one, you know? So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about it, though. I guess that's where it left me. Yeah, I. Uh, me too. I'm... Uh, I'm I'm moved by it in in some way, uh, but that way is generally uh, paranoid paranoic. Uh, the it, it opens I think it opens next week in Vatican City uh, on the 29th, uh, but it hits the rest of the the world. Uh, this is one of those Oscar hump films, so Greece, uh, the USA will get limited openings December 23rd. Um, Spain, December 30th, and then uh, it opens wide in the U.S. in January with no specific date uh, through uh, March to Germany. A whole bunch of countries uh, across Europe and uh, Asia in January. Um, so get ready for it. It's, uh, you know, it's Scorsese, so I, I don't know. It's going gonna, it's <laughs> gonna to have something to talk about at least. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right, what's yours? Well, speaking of uh, uh, skeptical, curious, something to talk about, uh, my trailer <laughs> this week is... <laughs> We're pretty much the worst this week. Oh, my I God. Know, really. Uh, but All mine right. is the, the live-action retelling of Ghost in the Shell, which, um, you know, I, I saw the, the original anime version of the, the manga comic um, in the 90s, and I, I thought it was interesting. I was like, okay, that's pretty interesting. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. I never really got kind of really wrapped up in it or anything, but I thought it was interesting enough. And then, you know, all the rumblings about the live action remake and the rumblings about Scarlett Johansson being in it and, and you know, the whole whitewashing of having her in it. And, you know, there's so many things to, to, to what, that you hear about something like this. And then you see the trailer and you're like, wow, okay, it looks pretty cool. It has a very interesting look all through it. Um, Rupert Sanders is directing it, and uh, and then it's written by Jonathan Herman and Jamie Moss. Um, 
knowing that Rupert Sanders is directing it uh, also leads to my skepticism. Um, he directed uh, Snow White and the Huntsman, which, you know, it was an interesting uh, screenplay on the blacklist, and uh, he directed it. Uh, I mean, it actually looked great, but on the whole, the story itself I found to be relatively underwhelming. I, I think that in the translation from the blacklist script to what was released was a little, uh, a little clunky. And, uh, you know, knowing that he's directing this, I know he can make it look beautiful. Um, he made uh, Snow White look beautiful. I, I think that there's going to be a great sense to uh, to this one. Uh, and, you know, Jonathan Herman uh, was behind Straight Out of Compton. I enjoyed that. Uh, it's interesting writing on both parts. Jamie Moss has some interesting credits, uh, but not really much to speak of. So I don't know. I feel like this is going to be an interesting one. I feel like, again, I'm more curious about it than anything else. Um, so I don't know. It kind of leaves me meh. But I still want to see it just because I'm curious, I guess. How'd it hit you? Well, uh, sort of ridiculously, I I have a really hard time. Uh, this, this is this is the film that I think exemplifies the problem with the whitewashing issue in 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 cinema right now. It's it is like I, I can make the case. I can I can feel the case in Doctor Strange. You know, the, with the ancient the ancient one. Yeah, I I really get it, but I still can make the case that the casting and the change in the script was was at least in someone mind rational. I cannot even in any realm understand the casting decisions that they made in Ghost in the Shell. I can't wrap my head around it. It's ridiculous. And I'm so, so, such an antagonist over Lucy that, you know, um, I it, it leaves me kind of a, a rough taste in my mouth. This kind of role for Scarlett Johansson, I have a little bit of trouble with. And this is weird, right? Because I have, I really enjoy her as Black Widow. Uh, it, clearly, she can handle these these tough guy parts, right? These these tough woman parts. She got it. She got it. I get it. But she should be. There are so many wonderful, just, just great Japanese actors that could handle this this kind of of a role. It's embarrassing to me that she got. And it goes so far beyond her. Michael Pitt plays plays Kuze. He's a former Dawson's Creek guest. Like this is. The, you, <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Michael Wincott, Juliette Binoche. I mean, there's plenty of them. Before you get down to, uh, you know, Takeshi Kitano, who actually pops up in it, and Chin Han, who we talked about in Contagion, and and Rila Fukushima. I I mean, you get some some Asian actors in there, but it's a little lower down on the on the totem pole. Um, You know, what's weird though is I, you know, I actually heard that as far as what uh, people in Japan had. thought of the casting of Scarlett Johansson they you know at least the people in the the uh, you know the interview that I heard they were thrilled they thought she was an interesting uh, choice for the role so it's it's weird how different people might interpret these things um and I can certainly see the issue but yeah she's she's a, a huge like global star right that's just kind of the the weight that she carries and i i get that she's very talented and very popular you know around the world and in many of the films that she does i also think that there is such a thing as kind of cultural good oh yeah and this goes against the cultural good we need to right the casting wrongs and we need to do it because uh you know white filmmaking has been the problem and we have to fix that problem, and this movie absolutely goes against that. Whether people in Japan like it or not is a totally unrelated issue right now, right well, now at this point in history. The problem, 
unfortunately, is that it all comes down to the almighty dollar. And with corporations running all of the studios, they only look at the dollar. And Scarlett Johansson is a guaranteed box office draw. Unfortunately, I don't know if there's an Asian actress uh, that globally is going to have the draw that Scarlett Johansson is going to have. Uh, Not that there aren't any that are better than her, because I would certainly argue that there are. But, uh, you know, that's the case. And it's just, it's sad that that's the way it is. And, And you could argue that if they didn't cast Scarlet, that this film might not have gotten made. Or if it did, the budget would have been monumentally smaller. And, you know, that's kind of the sad state of of how the industry is. And it's like, you know, it's it's very frustrating. And I'm not sure... Uh, I'm not sure what the way around it is. I totally hear you, and uh, and that just gets back to the original point when we first heard that Ghost of the Shell was being live-actioned. And with all of these live-actions, the, the big question comes down to, did it really need to be done? And and I think it, it will be, this will be a work of art uh, for the, the teams of animators that make this thing come alive, and cultural issues be damned. What are you going to do? Well, it opens at the end of March pretty much around the world, March 31st here in the U.S. So there you go. Don't ask me about my business, Andy. I spend my life trying not to be careless. Never tell anybody outside the family what you're thinking again. Women and children can be careless, but not men. The Godfather, Andy. The big one. Do you, is there? I don't. What do we? What do we? Uh, what do we have to add to the to this film? <laughs> yeah. Do we ever? Have we ever stopped to ask ourselves that question? I think we have <laughs> once or twice, but we plowed on anyway. Why are the lowly two of us talking about <laughs> this film? Nineteen seventy-two, uh, uh, written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, co-written by Mario Puzzo, the uh, original author of the book. Stars uh, a lot of people, including Marlon Brando and Al Pacino and James Caan and Robert Duvall and uh, uh, Diane Keaton and Abe Vigoda, who and knows Vigoda. everything everything about toilets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Talia Shire. It just hits a lot of people. We're going to talk all about them. And uh, this uh, kicks off our, our incredible foray into The Godfather. Now, when you watch this movie, Andy, did you watch... The uh, which version did you watch? I had that on Laserdisc. I actually had that. Uh, it was the Godfather. Uh, How many Laserdiscs was it? It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How much did it weigh? That's actually. I think that's I how they sold a them. Small child with that. Thing. <laughs> I don't think there's any way to watch this other than the the, the version. That's the see. I watched the the digital the re- remaster. Yeah, which is I mean it's it's That's the, film. the version. It's, it's not like they yeah, didn't, they it's, didn't rec- it's, it's not like an apocalypse now thing. Right. Exactly. I mean, the film's the yeah. film. I don't think it's ever yeah. been changed. Yeah. Except Boy, it was by, beautiful. God, it was yeah, beautiful. It? Yeah, it's a it's a stunning film to look at. They they really did an incredible job cleaning this one up. I had never uh, I I hadn't ranked this. Oh. Uh, on my flick chart, and it's it surprised me. <laughs> Foreshadow, really surprised me. <laughs> Straight to the bottom. How uh, <laughs> how did this piece of crap hit you uh, on this release? This watch. Yeah, I mean, this film is so easy to watch. I have seen this film countless times. It's a film 
Uh, I think I told you uh, last week at the end of our episode that uh, when my wife and I uh, watch it, then we immediately want uh, to make Italian food and then we just want to keep watching the whole series. And uh, that's exactly what we did. We're like, okay, I think it's time to cook up some pasta. So we got the pasta ready and everything. And unfortunately, adulting uh, interrupted our, our lives. We weren't able to finish the whole trilogy in one fell swoop. But, you know, we, we uh, definitely were there in spirit. So, you know, it's how, just such a how great slowly, film. How slowly do you eat pasta? I mean, isn't it gross after about the, the first half hour? <laughs> Are you really still well, sucking we, on pasta? <laughs> we don't eat the entire time. <laughs> I worry about it. When do you get the? When do you grab the cannolis? Uh, right after we I'm have left sorry. the guns. <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. No, no, no. I mean, I, you know, it's it's a it's a brilliant film. It's uh, something that I I find just fascinating to watch the way that uh, that Coppola has created this this world that is it's such dark characters and it's such uh, largely terrible people, but I find them. Um, just so interesting to watch. And I really enjoy seeing how Michael kind of gets wrapped into this family business that he was always, um, he was intended to stay out of it. I don't think he wanted to get into it. I, th- I don't think his dad wanted him to get into it. And he just kind of falls into it and becomes this this powerful leader. I, I find it a really interesting film to watch as this character descends uh, in this world as he rises in power. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful film. It's just, it's fascinating to watch. And I had a great time this time. Even though I've seen it like you countless times, it feels like the first time every time I, I turn it on. I, it was, again, I turned it on just last night. I turned it on at 930 thinking, well, I'll just get through an hour and, and, and watch the rest tomorrow. You know, of course you're not going to do that. Of course you're not going to do that with this movie. Uh, I, so I, I'm up well into the night and I really stopped and thought, should I, should I just plow through Godfather 2? It's, it's only 1245. <laughs> uh, it, it is a, a beautiful, lovely thing. One of the things I like so much about it was, you know, and I'm always talking about the mirror, right? That, that this is a film that's holding up a mirror kind of reflective of culture as it is, as, as it is seen uh, by the storytellers. This film lays out all of its cards in the opening three minutes. And I think that is, is such a gift uh, that I, I'm never connected with before this most recent viewing quite as well, because I, I just wasn't watching for it. But as soon as I stopped to listen to that opening monologue, the whole movie makes a whole different kind of sense, uh, and and makes really, I think, the perfect film that that is just so ripe for critique. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliantly constructed opening that I think wasn't even originally there. I think originally um, Coppola it was just going to start right in the wedding, and you're going to have the whole wedding scene and. And, uh, you know, I can't remember which of his, uh, you know, zoetrope friends kind of said, you know, you really should have something that happens right before uh, the wedding just to kind of give us a little hint of this this film. So we have a sense of this this world and everything other than, you know, being introduced through the wedding. And so um, he kind of came up with that whole thing in that speech. And you're right, that three minute speech really sets up everything that we are uh, that we come to learn about this world this mafia family and and kind of what the whole thing is all about and it's it's a great way to open the film it's very powerful 
What was going on? Talk, talk a little bit about what was going on in, at the time for Paramount in particular. Yeah, you know, when this film uh, was, uh, you know, bought by uh, by Robert Evans at Paramount, uh, when the script was bought, uh, it was a rough time for Hollywood. You know, the studios had kind of been dying out. There were a lot of changes going on in Hollywood. Uh, I think in 1969, 1970, it was really kind of at that point, the lowest uh, attendance for movies than had ever been recorded. It was just a really rough time. Uh, the studios couldn't really click with what was the changes going on in the world. And Paramount, uh, of all the studios, I mean, they were kind of the bottom of the heap. Um, everybody was being taken over by corporations. I think uh, Robert Evans was really struggling trying to figure out what to do. Love Story, luckily, which came out, I think, a few years before this, um, was a big hit for them. And they really had needed that big hit because they were uh, just financially not doing very well. Um, and he got a hold of this manuscript for this uh, this uh, this book. Um, and uh, and he read it. And it's like, oh, let's make this. It, it'll be great. Um, the distribution, the distribution side of Paramount was like, eh, you know, these mobster movies, they don't really do very well. And, uh, but he kind of was pushing it and thought it would, uh, at least be something that could make them some money. Um, and so, yeah, this is this time when, when things were looking a little down and, uh, you know, he was just like, let's do this thing. Let's make a quick buck with it. Um, it, the, the story was all written to be uh, taking place in the in the 40s and 50s. And he was just like, hey, you know, let's just update the story to present day. We can make it cheap. We'll do it down in, uh, in St. Louis. Um, it'll be about kind of hippies and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and they were all on board. Everybody kind of got on board with this crazy, crazy <laughs> direction for this movie. Hippie mob story. I I can't even imagine what they were thinking, but there they were. You know, I think they were just out to make a quick buck on a on a book that they thought would just be a a a quick and cheap uh, read. I don't think anybody expected the book to turn into what it turned into, and they certainly didn't expect the film to turn into what it turned into. Um, they were trying to find somebody to direct it, and every director that they went to turned it down because it just sounded so dumb. I mean, you hear that, and it does sound terrible. And so finally, you know, Coppola had a few uh, a few films that he had done, and he had written Patton. And so they're like, oh, well, let's try this guy. You know, he's you know he he's somebody that we can kind of control. And obviously, this is the thing that we've heard of quite a bit in recent years. I mean, all through time, really. I mean, David Fincher, exactly the same thing. They thought that they could control him when they brought him on to do Alien Three. They he certainly proved them wrong there. Um, all these directors now directing Godzilla or, geez, Ghost in the Shell, all these different films, um, they're hiring these 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 young directors because the studios are like, well, you know, it's somebody we can control and they're they're malleable. We can make uh, what we want. And Coppola certainly seemed that way to Robert Evans at the time. So they brought him in to direct this. And uh, yeah, things things changed a little bit. What's so fascinating about this is that um, so Coppola he, he'd founded Zotrope with his his buddies and they're trying to to figure out a way to take ownership of this system, and here we have Coppola uh, who gets these people right. He gets this. It, it he he's he gets being raised uh, it, Italian. He gets the the tone. He gets the color. He gets the voices. He gets the story of royalty that this that this book tells uh and he really falls for it and and falls 
for something that that he can tell not so much as a story of of strictly the mafia, but a story of family and family that he can respect and can treat with respect on screen. And that ends up ultimately what saves us from the uh, from the the hippie story, the hippie mob story in St. Louis, and and gives us uh, the the classic view of. Uh, of you know, ultimately the snapshot of of real life. Uh, you know, it was interesting to watch some of the the behind the scenes stuff. He says, you know, I didn't know anything about the mob uh, when when I got this book. It's, that was totally new, but I absolutely knew these families, and that's what really comes through on screen. And that I think is what we 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 celebrate with the movie, not just the great lines, the unbelievably quotable sequences, but the fact that this is a family that that even if you know. If, if you were Italian and, and were raised in New York, maybe even more so. But I think we all can relate to these family relationships. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge thing. And I mean, if you know anything about Coppola, you know that family has always been huge, um, not just in the film business, but in the wine business and kind of everything he does. It's all very family oriented. And that's definitely a big thing. Um, I You know, I, I think it's great that he he found a way to kind of add this or, or I shouldn't say add but really enhance this family element to this to this story but I think what's what's so interesting is how when he uh, you know he and and Puzo adapted this script they really created this world for us and and Roger Ebert has this great quote um, in his write-up about uh, this movie. He says, The Godfather is told entirely within a closed world. That's why we sympathize with characters who are essentially evil. The story by Puzo and Coppola is a brilliant conjuring act, inviting us to consider the mafia entirely on its own terms. Don Vito Corleone emerges as a sympathetic and even admirable character. During the entire film, this lifelong professional criminal does nothing that, in context, we can really disapprove of. We see not a single action civilian victim of organized crime, no women trapped into prostitution, no lives wrecked by gambling, no victims of theft, fraud, or protection rackets. The only police officer with a significant speaking role is corrupt. The story views the mafia from the inside. That is its secret, its charm, its spell. In a way, it has shaped the public perception of the mafia ever since. The real world is replaced by an authoritarian patriarchy where power and justice flow from the godfather and the only villains are traitors. There's one commandment spoken by Michael. Don't ever take sides against the family. Again, very important. Family is just huge in this world and clearly huge in uh, Coppola's. But it's it's so interesting and, and I think smart and really possibly the only way to really do a mafia film um, uh, well where you can actually sympathize with the characters, where it puts you into that world. This is cultural adaptation, right? Even in the relationship between filmmaker and audience member, that um, once you put us, the, the members of the audience, in this capsule, we can't help but change ever so slightly our belief system while we're watching the film. And that's a huge gift. As a filmmaker, that's an enormous gift of trust that we give you. And I think that's what Coppola does so well here, is he takes our trust and gives us a world that we absolutely buy because he doesn't challenge us to take sides, right? The sides that we're taking— it, it, they're the sides of this benevolent father figure that that we we are in touch with, and even though we may in in the rational sort of real world outside of the theater, uh, we we absolutely would not condone this. But once he sets us up on this stage, 
uh, the the story of of father and son relationships and doesn't give us anything to challenge that context, um, it it becomes suddenly the death of Sonny becomes absolutely tragic, not because it's cold-blooded murder in the middle of a public street, but because we need to get some vengeance. And that's okay. Right. And not because, you know, Sonny's a character who we kind of don't like because he's... Yeah, because he's, he's a hothead. And, and everything. Yeah, he's, and he's, he's right. cheating on his wife and all this stuff. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Coppola's, yeah. you know, he's a smart filmmaker. When we talked about Apocalypse Now recently, I mean, he clearly is somebody who is an interesting guy to watch. But I mean, man, he knows how to compose shots. He knows how to hold really long shots. I love watching the just the length of his shots and the way he frames them and positions characters within them. He knows when to cut them. He knows how to let his cast and crew do what they do best. I just think he's a director who, at least at this period in his life, I mean, certainly we could have a different discussion uh, with some of the films that he did later in his career. But I think early in his career, I mean, he was just at the top of his game doing some really interesting things. And I, I think it really, really shows here. I was I was trying so hard to come up with the, the perfect way to use the Kaiser Soze metaphor, you know, like this was this <laughs> blank is the Kaiser Soze of this film, right? It's the ultimate trick. And originally I thought it's the, you know, it's the monologue. It's the Kaiser Soze. You don't know until the end of the film that you, you they told you what the film was about. You knew in the beginning. But I, I actually think it's that, that uh, and it took me a lot of years to figure this out, that this is not a movie about, uh, the, that Brando is not the protagonist, right? The, the dawn that we meet in the beginning beginning this you know giant mountain of a man who is you know benevolent with his gifts of trust and and uh, you know uh, fury when he is you know risen to anger uh, is not who this film is about this is the supervillain origin story of Michael Corleone and we we get just a hint of him in the opening wedding and he's the guy who is out of the business and then he is slowly brought into the business and the turn and the incredible his incredible first act of violence as a member of quote the family this is his story and i think watching the godfather in isolation this perfect gem of a film uh it it's uh you you may miss that Right, you you may miss the fact that this isn't about the central character that you're taught is this is Brando's movie. It's it's not Brando's movie. Uh, that's for me is the ultimate trick. It's insidious the way he changes who we get to believe in. It's great, and 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 you see so many great scenes uh, throughout the film where you can see how kind of Michael is so reserved and and quiet. And how how uh, Vito is really kind of you know trying to protect Michael, and then you have that beautiful moment when Michael is is with Vito in the hospital, and he's just like, "I'm here, Pop. I'm here." That's kind of his entrance. You know, he is now going to help protect his father, who might no longer be able to completely protect himself. And then and then there's like the scenes when when the two of them are chatting and, and it's, it's, you know, much later and Vito is, is older and not quite as as with it. And he's forgetting things and he keeps reminding his son, who is now kind of taken over as the Don. And he's just he keeps reminding him, oh, yeah, whoever whoever comes to you is going to be the one who uh, is, behind, you know, the, that you can't trust. And, and just all this stuff like there's some great scenes between the two of them. 
that uh, that really kind of highlight the the transition, and it's it's a really powerful and really touching thing. And then and Michael, I think what the trick is is that Michael is so reserved through it, but he's so controlled with his intensity, and you can see just you can see it building up in him when he is um, ready to kill Salazzo and McCluskey in the uh, in the diner. And and you hear that incredible like the rumbling of the the uh, the L racing by, and it's almost like you are hearing that turmoil inside of him building as he's kind of getting ready to actually shoot these two guys. It's done so well, and then you finally see that in his face at the end when he finally confronts Kay. Um, it's you know a masterful masterful performance by Pacino in this film. Well, it really is. And as long as we're talking about that particular sequence, I mean, you want a masterclass in, in you know, transmission of emotion. This is an exercise in micro expressions. And it's not just gritted teeth micro expressions. You know, generally, when you have these brilliant close ups on, on, you know, terrific actors, one of the, you know, one of the things they do to, to make their face move is kind of grit their teeth just sort of subtly, and you can see the muscles kind of move in their jaws. And, and in this case, you see just the incredible fine control that Pacino is able to muster in his face around his eyes and his forehead and you can see the seething rage just rise up in his face right before he takes action he's staring down but the motions of the muscles undulating under his skin uh, it's it's incredible it is a chilling performance and i i'd forgotten just how wonderful he is as a, a just a straight up craftsman it's so good. It's just, it's so powerful. It hits me every time. I, I don't have a lot to say about Francis Ford Coppola as a as a director, uh, but you know, I I do want to talk about the wedding in particular. Go for it. Do you, do you, do you, do you remember the deer hunter? I do. Do you remember the wedding, or did you black out halfway through? <laughs> oh, I remember. I, I remember bits and pieces, but I certainly don't remember it uh, like I remember this wedding. Well, we, that's that's my point, man. Uh, this the the wedding and the deer hunter was interminable. It went on forever, and and until I I watched this wedding again, I didn't realize why it was so bad, and this wedding was so good. The wedding is, you know, ultimately what the wedding is showcasing here is just complete mundanity, right? It's just this is this is a family wedding. What are we doing at a family wedding? And we're watching the most mundane details. We're watching the brother hit on the bridesmaid. We're watching that. I mean, these are just the little sort of soap opera things that that happen. But w- what that gives us is the ability to meet all of these people in an incredibly efficient manner, right? It is, uh, it gives us a taste of every character. In one in particular, the introduction of Luca Brazzi uh, is uh, it's it's perfection. It is not only screenwriting perfection for me. It is uh, it's performance perfection. We have Luca Brazzi sitting on a table and he wants to thank the Don. He's sitting on a, a stool outside the Don's office. He wants to thank the Don for a personal invitation, and he is rehearsing. <laughs> he's rehearsing what he's going to say, uh, and he's a he's a big oaf, and so you can kind of get the feel that he's you know he's just kind of this goofy guy trying to get his words right. In the meantime, Michael is sitting with Kay, and Kay notes, she said, that guy is talking to himself. So now we've had a bit of character introduction in Luca Brazzi over in the corner, and now we're watching Luca Brazzi talk to himself past Michael. So we have all three of them. We're over Kay's shoulder, and we're looking at Michael as he's telling the story of who Luca Brazzi is. And uh, and 
he gives us that little, just couple of sentences of character background while we watch Luca Brasi demonstrating at the background in, in, in the the background of the of the shot. It is it is so great. It's every single piece of that sequence comes right together, and it fills me with glee. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that when Luca Brasi goes in to actually uh, deliver his message to uh, Don Corleone, that he just can't talk at all, which is no, which is. Hel- <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny. And the best part of that, which is something I never even really knew, is that he was, he really, I mean, this was a non actor at the time. I mean, you know, he went into this. This is Lenny Montana playing Luca Brazzi. He was a, a former pro wrestler and he was actually a, a mob enforcer for the Colombo family. Um, and he was cast in this part and he was so nervous to act with Marlon Brando that he couldn't say his lines. And, and Marlon was of course also being, you know, just a a jokester and writing things on his forehead to make, uh, Lenny have a harder time (laughs) to get his lines out and, uh, and all of this. And so Coppola is just like, what am I going to do? This guy is terrible. He can't act at all. And then he had the brilliant idea because they shot the interiors first of adding the scene when Luca was practicing his speech outside so that it made sense. So when you see him inside, you know that this is a guy who had been practicing because he was really nervous to actually, you know, talk to the Don. It became like a brilliant little story, you know, perfect setup and payoff. And all because of this, this accidental discovery that this guy just really wasn't able to act with Brando. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Uh, do you have anything else to add about uh, about Coppola, uh, or shall we talk first shot, last shot? Uh, you know, I just think Coppola is great. We're going to be talking about him um, in uh, the next couple episodes. So, uh, yeah. yeah, let's move forward. First shot. Uh, we we start on black. This is uh, Bonacera's, I believe, in America speech that we uh, talked about earlier, and and it is a very uh, it, it's a dissolve onto an incredible close up on his face as he delivers this monologue, and it pulls out to reveal uh, we're in Corleone's office. Uh, we see a little bit of Corleone's shoulder before the first cut. Uh, in fact, one of the notable things for me this time was the way Corleone raises his hand and waves a little bit as somebody from out of uh, frame brings a drink to Bonacera. And I had never noticed that before. It's just one of those little tiny subtle foreground touches that I hadn't, hadn't noticed all within that first shot. And then the last shot is uh, we see this is after uh, Michael and Kay have had their conversation he says he lies to her saying that he has not uh he did not kill carlo uh connie's husband and uh, then Kay walks out to get them both drinks she then turns back and she sees uh clemenza and some other uh, people in the crime family coming in and kissing michael's hand calling him don corleone and uh and then one of uh, michael's goons goes to close the door and the last shot is of Kay's face looking at this as she realizes kind of what this world is and we see the the door close on her physically metaphorically kind of closing her out of michael's life so what do you think great stuff great stuff this is really kind of all about uh you know this world and and this world that we're in and who's allowed in and who's not and just kind of 
the the experience people have within this world and and i mean you already said it earlier about this i believe in america speech that we open with it really sets up this entire film and what we can come to expect of this story and the fact that that michael who is the new don you know he's a guy who is seemingly so all about his family but he's so always closing people out of his life and it's just it's an interesting exploration of uh, kind of the two versions of these uh, these different dawns at the beginning and end of the film. It's 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 pretty uh, pretty interesting. Totally, totally. The 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 first shot for me is one that you know we talked about how well it sets up the sort of themes that we're going to be dealing with over the course of the film. But it, one of those themes, as we look at at the the role of sort of the American dream and achieving success in America with integrity and authenticity, right? I mean, that's what we're what he's asking for. His Bonacera is there to ask for justice, right? This is this is, you know, how how am I supposed to hold my head high knowing that these guys got away with this thing to my family? There is no integrity in that. We're talking about sort of living in truth in this in this opening sequence. And that is what the family represents through this first monologue and this first shot. And at the end of the film that we end on a lie in the family, that he lies directly to her face, I think demonstrates an unbelievable transition that has occurred from one generation to the next and so perfectly sets up Godfather 2 uh, that, um, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's just, I think, to, to see these as just sort of part one and part two of the same film. Um, it is, uh, it's a perfect pairing for me. Even more than than lying to Kay about uh, about having killed Carlo or having had Carlo killed, the fact that he has Carlo killed in the first place, it, I, you know, thinking back on it, it makes me wonder if if uh, Don Corleone, if Vito actually would have killed a family member, um, you know, or if if he would have just kind of demoted them in the ranks or something like that. I, and I feel right. like. You know, there's there's even more that that, uh, you know, Michael is just, you know, he is willing to kind of kill family. And, and you see that at the end and lie about it. I mean, it's it's dark. The, it, the family is definitely going into dark places with uh, Michael's decisions here. Well, right. And isn't it interesting? And I don't want to foreshadow our conversation at all. But isn't it interesting to watch how uh, loyalty, family and justice is served in Godfather one compared to Godfather two? And yes, even in Godfather three, all three of these movies push that discussion forward a little bit further. Uh, and and push the boundaries of what the family is willing to do uh, a little bit harder. Let's talk about the cast. Yeah, Fred Roos, uh, who's uh, one of Coppola's regular guys, uh, he'd been helping him out quite a bit. He helped him with the casting. Also, Andrea Eastman and uh, Louis DiGiamo uh, also did some casting here. Um, Andrea Eastman, this was it, other than this in Love Story. That was it for her credits, period. As far as Lewis goes, this was his first gig, but certainly was somebody who had done a lot of stuff after this. But I think Fred Roos was probably the main guy um, helping with the casting. And uh, yeah, I mean, you said it earlier, this is a, uh, a beefy cast we've got. It is a huge cast. Uh, it starts with Mr. Brando himself as Vito Corleone. Uh, and this was one of many of the conflicts between Coppola and the studio. When Coppola came in, I mean, they had a huge list of people that they thought could be uh, Don Corleone. I think Ernest Borgnine was on there. Uh, I can't remember who else. But uh, Coppola said, you know, it's got to be one of the big 
the big actors in 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 Hollywood. And he he and Puzo were ta- talking, and they said, um, you know, the the two would either be um, Marlon Brando or Laurence Olivier, and Olivier wasn't available. And so they said, well, let's let's try Brando. And so Paramount, they mentioned it to Paramount, and they're like, no way is he ever going to be in this picture. I mean, Coppola, the way that he says it, it sounds just like uh, the movie mogul uh, when uh, Tom Hagen goes and talks <laughs> to him uh, to get uh, Johnny Fontaine apart. Uh, sounds just like that. Uh, makes me wonder how much reality really crept into this film. <laughs> but I, I think Paramount finally was uh, swayed. Uh, they said, they told Coppola, you know, he has to do a screen test and if they like it and if he doesn't take a salary and causes no trouble because, you know, Brando had caused trouble on a number of films and uh, so everybody was really nervous about having Brando in a movie. So Coppola did a screen test and and that's the famous screen test where Brando is just like, you know, he's got to look like a bulldog and he stuffed Kleenex into his cheeks to kind of puff them out and make him sag down a little bit more. And and he kind of started getting that whispery voice and all of that sort of stuff. And it all kind of came together in that magical screen test. And when the folks at Paramount saw that, they they signed him. They thought he did a great job. They actually did pay him $50,000 and gave him back-end points, which... Unfortunately for Brando, uh, he later sold um, because he was having money troubles. Before the movie was finished, he sold his back-end points for $100,000, which, unfortunately, if he hadn't done that, it w- he would have earned an additional $11 million. But uh, <laughs> these are, you know, these are things, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, he's perfect. And for a guy who wasn't as old as, as Don Corleone... Boy, does he look the part. And I No kidding. I, I, I can't get over just watching him how much he seems like this old man. I mean, he's just so good in this role. Yeah, I and we'll we'll talk about the credit the makeup department uh later, but his AJ makeup is I mean, even it holds up so perfectly today. Like he just absolutely embodies this cast or this character. But uh, man, his face, the way his face ages through the injury and uh, and and recovery uh, and how much he ages just as a result of his time in the hospital and then back home. But the, through the last scene, if you compare the opening scene through his last scene in the garden playing with the, the oranges, I mean, it's uh, uh, it, it is a radical transformation for an otherwise, you know, young man. And Pacino, I mean, you know, he's perfect as as this young son, as the as the youngest of the three sons. I think he uh, um, this was early on in his career, but he showed right away what he was capable of. Uh, he certainly did. He was uh, a controversial uh, selection once again. Coppola wanted him. Studio wanted others. Uh, goodness, Jack Nicholson. Can you imagine Jack Nicholson in this role? <laughs> I know. So strange. I mean, I know he was in kind of some movies at the time, but still. Yeah. Seems so different. Yeah. Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, uh, you know, Robert Redford. None of them. I can I can imagine none of them. Robert Redford is the weirdest. He, he's like, he yeah. doesn't even look Italian. I mean. No, not even Maybe close. you could get away with some of the others, but really, it's it's hard to it's hard to see any of them working. What True. I think is so funny is that Coppola uh, really wanted Pacino, and, and he kept sneaking him into the screen tests um, all through the whole testing process. And even though, you know, Al was feeling like a little uncomfortable, like, you know, I don't think they want me. We don't have to keep doing this. Coppola <laughs> kept pushing, and uh, eventually they finally got it. But 
even with that, they started seeing uh, some uh, some dailies in that first week, and they were really nervous. You know, I, the first day was the scenes when they were he and Kay were outside of the department store after doing Christmas shopping and things like that, and they were just like, "Oh my God, this guy's horrible!" Totally convinced he was gonna uh, be a, a just a, a bomb for them, and so they were thinking of recasting him. Luckily. In that first week, they uh, they shot the uh, the murder of Salazzo and McCluskey, and they thought Al was okay after that. So uh, it's all about the you know uh, the sell and seeing a moment like that. I can see them uh, buying off on it. Absolutely. I mean, this was his. It looks like his third film after Me, Natalie, and The Panic in Needle Park. I've seen neither of them. Panic in Needle Park was. Uh, I know that was kind of where he got his break. Um, but, uh, and, and he's supposed to be good in it, but before this, he was really a stage actor and that was kind of a, a nice break into film, but I don't think it was something that people thought, oh, okay, he's a movie star now. This is the one that really kind of set people uh, going down that track. Trivia fell in love with, uh, Keaton. That was a real thing. That was a real thing. It's a true story. That's a true story. I think they were together for what, like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, something like he that. He was originally with uh, with uh, Jill Clayburgh. That's right. Too bad. It's sad. It's practically a, a mafia love story right there. <laughs> could have been. Yes, it could. <laughs> could have been. Uh, anyway, incredibly intense. Uh, you know, such a such a an exercise in small movements, small voice, small expressions that tell such a big story. Uh, it's fantastic. James Caan. As uh, our man Sonny, Santino Corleone. He uh, he was one of Coppola's guys. They worked together on The Rain People along with Robert Duvall. And uh, I haven't seen that one. I know that was one of Coppola's uh, first films. I don't think it had done well, um, but it was one that obviously helped get him the job. So, you know, it, it still piques my curiosity to check it out. But uh, we've yeah. talked about Khan a number of times on the show. I mean, he's just, you know, man, he's always good, right? Oh, he's a perfect hothead, and th- that he is able to, uh, you know, so eloquently deliver what could have been a, a really trite bit of foreshadowing, you know, and I, at the wedding, and he goes out, and he roughs up, and he sees the cops are there, and he, he roughs up the newspaper guy's camera and then throws money on the ground. I mean, of course he's the guy who's going to get, you know, aced in the parking there <laughs> in the, in the high, on the highway. You know, right? We just he he, but he absolutely delivers it, and his relationship. I I, I have to say, with uh, Robert Duvall's Tom Hagen, uh, is is perfect in this interim period where you know uh, Sonny is trying to run the family, but all he can do is run it with rage and uh, no grace, and uh, uh, and and Duvall, who is who I'm used to. To seeing in this era being a little bit more of a hothead is such a gentle and uh, uh, expert conciliary, right? I mean, he's just a great lawyer, and he plies his trade to uh, to the Don because he has family history, and he, he would be just as authentic of, a, of an attorney, whoever he served. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think their relationship, yeah, their backroom conversations are just fantastic. Getting thrust into this world can be a little confusing sometimes, but, you know, the, the conversation that Sonny has with Tom about, you know, you know, dad had a great wartime conciliary. Why do I get stuck with you or whatever? And it's like trying to understand, like, what's the difference between the the regular conciliary and the wartime conciliary? And did we ever meet the early conciliary? I'm not sure. But 
you know, it all works so well. I you hear them talking and you get what they're saying, even if you don't fully fully get it, you know. And I I love that about the conversations that these guys have. Um, I think it's interesting that I, I think um, uh, Martin Sheen had actually read for Sonny. He was one of the people that had come in, and of course, he and Duvall and even Brando. I mean, they all ended up together a few years later in uh, Apocalypse Now with uh, with Coppola. Uh, he again, he really likes his his team. You know, he likes finding people that he likes to work with and bringing them back again and again. Um, so, you know, it's a great group. I think Duvall and Khan are just fantastic here as the uh, the the uh, another of the brothers and kind of the adopted brother. And, and you know, John Cazal also, who is an old buddy of Coppola's. I mean, he's another really interesting brother in this in this family of these brothers. And then, of course, the sister. But I, but Cazal, I think, is um, uh, he's such an interesting character here. And it's really, uh, it's kind of tragic that there's this brother that just kind of, you know, doesn't fit in and doesn't quite click, you know? More sad still when we actually see Cazal in, uh, uh, in uh, Las Vegas and see that the only place that he really fits in is this incredibly flamboyant, like, absolute antithesis of everything that his his family had stood for in terms of aesthetic and demeanor uh, that's the place he had to go to fit in is Las Vegas uh, showcasing just how flimsy a, a, a character he was uh, as a person I think it was brilliant and he he has a lot uh, a lot of fun stuff going on in part two so can't wait to talk Truly. about him more then and uh, the the uh, Talia Shire the the daughter uh as uh, Constanzia uh, Connie Corleone. Uh, uh, yes. She she also has better stuff coming up. Yeah, and but I think it's uh you know she does great here and uh, but it's just funny because you know Coppola that's something about kind of Coppola and his nepotism in Hollywood and you know I I'm not sure about his early films but I, you know every time I see this I always wonder is this where all that began as far as yeah. like you know <laughs> yeah, not right. just not just getting his family into his own films but into Hollywood period I mean you see the number of people connected to Coppola in like the bloodlines and it's like he is kind of like the godfather in Hollywood right I mean Nicolas Cage <laughs> is in that line and yeah. and uh and uh, uh Talia Shire's son Jason Schwartzman oh that's They're, right Wow. They're just all through, and so it always cracks me up. Not to mention his daughter Sofia Coppola, and yeah. and uh, yeah, it's just all through. So, who else is important to you on the list here? Well, I, I think Diane Keaton. Obviously, we should uh, just mention as the yeah. as kind of the outsider marrying into this family. I uh, I love Diane Keaton, and I think that she brings you know that Diane Keatonness here. Uh, you know, she's she's a really quirky actress. I don't think she's full on quirky here. But I, I love that she was cast here because she seems a great kind of, uh, I don't want to say a foil, although you could certainly argue that in some of the coming films, but just her her sense of um, viewing this family as an outsider, I really enjoy uh, as I kind of watch this film. But I still always have to question, I'm like, why would she ever marry this guy? I mean, I understand love and I understand how love can make people do silly things. But geez, if I learned that, uh, you know, I was marrying somebody whose father had this guy almost kill somebody, I was like, geez, is yeah. this really somebody? Is yeah. this the smartest person I should oh, get y together y with? Yeah, that's when you stand <laughs> up and walk away. Thanks for the great wedding. Uh, well, could you please have a car come around? Right, he disappears for years. Yeah, right, and yeah, then she's he finally still hanging comes out. back. 
Right. And he's just like, I just want to get married to you. She's like, oh, you're such a sucker. Why do you go back to him? Right. The first thing that he says to her, the first thing he says when she says, how long have you been back? He says, a year, probably more. (laughs) (laughs) And now you come see me take a hike, chump. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, we we do have uh, you know old uh, Gianni Russo. I I don't have much to say about Gianni other than he plays Carlo and Carlo is a central uh, uh, figure in the plot. And I I just like that. Really, the film is really the it's all about Connie and Carlo's marriage. You know, <laughs> it really is. It starts That's... at the wedding and it ends well. You know, you know. <laughs> yeah, it ends it ends at his his funeral and then they sell the house and we're done. <laughs> all right. So so long. Uh, Richard Castellano as Peter Clemenza. You know, what's funny about him, I mean, he's great as Clemenza. And of course, he's got the brilliant line, leave the gun, take the cannoli, which yeah. is always just a, one of the best. Um, but <laughs> apparently, he actually told Coppola, there was a big argument, because he was supposed to be in part two. But he ended up, uh, uh, Coppola ended up um, struggling trying to deal with him on his contract, because Castellano wanted to have in his contract that he could write his own lines for his character. <laughs> and Coppola's just like, that's not how it works. That's not what happens. You know, I'm, we're going to write it. it. It has to fit within the script and everything. And, and it was an argument all the way right up until the end, until I guess the day before. And so finally, uh, Coppola's just like, oh, okay, well, we'll just write it that he, he died. <laughs> <laughs> he just had to kill the character off in order to uh, get through it. And it's just like, yep, that's what happens. So he had done a bunch of TV uh, leading up to this. He'd done a couple of films, uh, you know, over the 10 years leading up to The Godfather. And then after The Godfather, it was kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> a, a gangster, uh, a gangster's sort of cornucopia of parts for him on TV and TV movies. He did The Godfather, a novel for television, reprising his role as uh, Peter Clemenza, and uh, and and then he was done in '82. Abe Vigoda, of course, was Tessio, who's uh, I mean, geez, come on, it's Abe Vigoda. They actually discovered him in an open casting call. And that's the sort of story that, you know, I, I, I like to think gives some actors hope you know, that, that people <laughs> still can be discovered in a casting call, you know, just a, one of these massive cattle calls. I mean, he had done stuff before this, um, but, you know, I don't think it was, uh, I don't, my understanding was none of it was that big. And, and this kind of helped set him on on a path to doing a lot of other things, including Joe versus the volcano. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The Wapani Woo. You know, it's he's got this uh, uh, this interesting thing, this turn in the film, because you know, I he's he's kind of the the goofy sort of character. He's a caricature, I should say, of of the role, right? And he's got the voice and the face, and he's just he's a little bit of an oddball, and he's kind of tall. Uh, but there is this. This this moment at the end after he's discovered and after he he he's surrounded by Michael's guys and he knows that Michael knows that he was behind the betrayal. He looks at Tom with the most sincere look on his face, right? And and just he's he's just so sweet and soft. And that for me is such an unbelievable uh, and and shocking. Uh, transition or transformation for his character that that he he's able to go from kind of old grizzled old tough guy to this this guy who is sort of with his eyes saying you know I I know what you have to do I so wish you wouldn't do it deceptively beautiful performance yeah his face right there as he's just like 
hey, can you get me out of this one for old time's sake? And it's just like, it yeah. almost breaks your heart. It's like, oh, man, I wish they could. I really wish they could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's tough. Uh, that is tough. Who else? Sterling Hayden. Yeah, we have to mention Sterling Hayden as Captain McCluskey. Man, is he just always great. And, you know, <laughs> he's so good as the guy who's always ready to throw some more negative epithets <laughs> out, regardless of what culture he's talking about. He's got it at a hand. And he's just... <laughs> He's just so funny. I mean, in, in just like the worst possible way. But I mean, I just love him as McCluskey. <laughs> He's so good. And, you know, he gets shot in the throat. And that's the thing I remember about his performance because he he does that gag. I, uh, where his tongue kind of comes out of his mouth as he's <laughs> as you know he's aware i just got shot in the throat and i'm still alive and then he gets shot again but man does he sell getting shot in the throat if if i ever happen to come across that i'll know it's authentic because i'll be comparing it to sterling hayden's performance here <laughs> Absolutely. that's grim uh richard conti pops up as barzini who's a great i you know the funny thing about barzini that i have to that i always laugh about is it's like you know, what is it that Barzini says that that clues uh, Don Corleone in that Barzini's behind all of it? You know, when he comes out of that meeting with all the, the five families and he's just like, I never knew until this night that it was Barzini. It's like, I was there watching the whole thing. What is it? What did Barzini do? God, these guys are good, man. But uh, yeah, Richard Conti, I mean, he was in some just of the, the great uh, noir films like Thieves Highway, Call Northside 777, uh, really great actor, and it was great seeing him uh, pop up in this one. Uh, and then, of course, we have the the Sinatra role uh, <laughs> played as played uh, by Al Martino under the name Johnny Fontaine. I, I think that's just so funny that, you know, it's it's this big kind of this myth about this movie that, uh, you know, it, Puzo, when he wrote it, really kind of patterned it at, patterned that character after uh, Frank Sinatra and how he got into Hollywood. Um, although Puzo never said that that's what happened, and he, but he's also never denied it. But, you know, it's it created this vague rumor about, oh, it's all about uh, it's all about Sinatra and and uh you know how he made got his big break and all that sort of stuff so i don't know it's just one of those funny things that uh i don't know it's a small part but i just find that aspect of uh, johnny fontaine fascinating well if if only because in the scene between johnny fontaine and don corleone where he's just weeping about how badly he needs to get this part and he's just simpering uh, uh, you know i don't know what i'm gonna do if i don't get this part godfather what am i gonna do you're gonna <laughs> drag him in and, and he does the mocking thing which is so perfect and i you know my kingdom for see don to see brando do that more i'd see a whole movie of him parading around as other people in don corleone makeup john marley plays jack waltz and i only want to talk about that because mostly i want to talk about the horse oh yes the horse jack waltz is the uh, legendary uh, hollywood producer who wakes up with a horse in his bed it's always earlier in the film than i expect it to be is it that seems to be a thing that you want to sort of work up to and even though i've seen the film a number of times even last night i was thinking man we're only just like a half hour into the movie and this is there's already the horse in the bed (laughs) but the thing i have to ask you andy after watching this movie as many times as you have, after seeing all the goons, like you see what they're made of, you see what they wear, you see kind of how portly they are in many cases. They're they're tough guys, but they're they're generally big guys, right? They're, they're, I'm thinking Luca Brazzi. They're they're big guys. How did they get the horse in the bed under the sheets 
while the guy was sleeping. <laughs> How did That's, those guys do that job? They have the sneaky one that we don't see. He's always in the room. He's just in the shadows. <laughs> That's how good he is, Pete. <laughs> He's the ninja mobster. That's right. <laughs> I think about that every single time because there's like enough blood in the bed. Like, like what? I'm, he, they must drug him. They must drug him. Yeah, they have he has to drug to be, him somehow. He has to be out in order for that whole thing to get pulled off. Oh, but man, did you know that's a real horse head? I did not yeah. know that. Tell me, tell me how they made that happen. Ugh. Well, it was they got in touch with. I think it was a dog food company because they would you know process dead horses. Uh, oh, that just made food. it worse. Oh, I know, God. right? I know it's so horrible. And they they actually, uh, yeah, they they uh, contacted the company and said, "Hey, when you you know slaughter your next horse, can we have its head?" <laughs> so, like, sure. Oh, God. Because not only are you telling me that it was a real horse head for the first time, but you're telling me that it was easy to get. Right, I know. It's so, so horrible. So there you go. <laughs> real horse head, real blood. I, I'd like to think that there was a lot of, uh, of like, caro corn syrup in the bed, too, and that what he was actually covered in was not the real horse's blood. <laughs> uh, and and therapy afterward. My God. <laughs> Right. What? Oh, so disgusting. How about old uh, Alex Rocco? Uh, Mo uh, Green. Clayton. Mo Green, yeah. Yeah, you got to love him. Um, yeah, he's the, I guess he's kind of based on Bugsy Siegel, which I uh, I didn't know, but I thought, you know, I, I guess it makes sense though, right? I thought he was based on Warren Beatty. <laughs> wow, Warren's old enough. Oh, <laughs> You see what I did there? Woo. Yeah, you're funny. Zinga. I, what I think is funny is that Alex Rocco came back to be in a uh, an Audi commercial um, recently, and uh, where he was playing the Jack Waltz character, and he <laughs> wakes up in bed, and he sits up, uh, you know, feeling something, and he looks at his hands, and they're covered in in motor oil. <laughs> He pulls the covers back to find the front of his car under his sheets, and of course, he screams. So funny. He screams, he screams, and then it pulls out, and, and right in front of the house is, uh, and I don't know if it's the same house. It looks like the same house. Uh, they uh, It is the Audi A8, and it, it like starts up, and the lights turn on, and it's like, oh my God, that's a duplicitous and violent car. <laughs> right, terrible story of the car. Oh, uh, we'll have to put the link for that in the show notes. Yeah, it's funny pretty funny. Commercial. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, what's uh, just jumping to effects real quick. Mo Green's death um, I, is a really interesting one because they um, uh, it was really tricky. Coppola wanted to you know make all the deaths kind of stand out a little bit, and he's just like, what if they shot Mo Green right through the glasses, through the lens of his glasses, and shot his eye, shot him in the eye? And they're like, well, how are we going to do that? <laughs> you know, you can't you can't do stuff like that. It's not like you can squib somebody's eye. I mean, it's it's tricky, and so they rigged. They came up with this rig with his glasses that actually um, there were two tubes on that pair of glasses that he was wearing. One of them would pump the blood all over his eye. The other tube actually had a little BB in it that it would project outward and it and some air, and it would blast this BB out through the glasses, and then the air would like blow all the dust and everything away from the lens, so away from the eye while the blood spurted all over the eye. 
And uh, it was, I guess it was a perfectly safe way to do it, but it works. And man, I mean, his death is one of those ones that always stands out to me. It's a lot of uh, blood. A lot of blood. It's just a lot it's of It's like horror. jutting, <laughs> jutting blood in the it's eye. It's like right in the eye, right in the eye. Oh. There are a lot of wonderful uh, characters and character actors in this film. Uh, let's jump down to uh, the uh, nepotism uh, evidence uh, prime example. <laughs> Can uh, we? Oh, yes. With old Sofia Coppola. You're a big fan of Sofia today, aren't you? I really enjoy her films. I, I shouldn't say enjoy um, her films. There are some of her films that I really enjoy. I haven't seen enough of her films. I know she's been directing quite a few. Um, I haven't seen a lot of her re- more recent ones. So I, I kind of want to go back and visit them. Um, but unlike you, the ones that at least I have seen, I have really enjoyed. So I'm curious to see what else she has done. Because I think she's a really interesting filmmaker. And I enjoy that she's kind of found this new... Uh, career because acting definitely wasn't a path that she should go on um and i'm sure we'll yeah. talk about that when we get to part three but at least yeah. here as an actress she's connie and carlo's uh young son michael francis rizzi uh the nephew and godson of corleone that we meet at the famous baptism scene at the end of the film and that is young sophia which is there and interestingly also uh, coppola's mom is there she's on the steps outside of the church and of course his dad pops up in the film uh speaking of nepotism his dad is in the little montage in the middle of the film after coppola or after uh, michael flees to sicily and you have all the different uh, murders happening uh, you see him kind of playing the piano sitting there in the in the bar we've seen old uh, sonny grosso too yeah, Sonny, who is uh, the the cop from the French Connection uh, that the whole thing's based on. Um, he, of course, was in the French Connection, and he's here. He's one of the cops outside of the hospital. I think he's the one that has the line uh, when McCluskey says to uh, arrest him. So, um, yeah, that's him popping up. He uh, certainly kept trying to get into the acting uh, world. We've talked a bit about uh, uh, about the production already, uh, but uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about getting it made. Bob Evans kicks off with Bob Evans. You know, we've already talked a lot about Evans and and getting this film made and how he and Coppola uh, kind of, uh, there were a lot of issues between the two of them all through the production, through the pre-production, through everything. I mean, this film, it they went into this film with this little book, you know, called Mafia that nobody thought was much other than just kind of this mobster story. And then the book just ballooned into this huge, huge uh, novel that was like a major bestseller. And all of a sudden, all the scrutiny came down on everybody making this movie. And all through pre-production, production, I mean, it was very rough on Coppola. He had a very hard time. He said he constantly felt like he was going to be fired. Um, and it's really, I mean, even right through to the end, through the post process. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end, he's he is under pressure from the studio to deliver a film that is going to be able to come in at roughly under a day long, uh, you know, shooting for that two hour, just over two hour mark, uh, and uh, and that he was he was under some significant pressure, so he cut it down, uh, cut it down from two forty five to two fifteen, uh, and uh, looks like everybody hated it, which is a, a good thing to. Have. 
<laughs> you have to have it happen. You have to imagine if you're Coppola, everybody comes back and says, you know, we hate what you just did. Do it the way you wanted. Uh, and so he put all that stuff back in uh, that the the team and Bob Evans in particular smart enough to know uh, that the longer film was the better film, that they, it needed to be released as it was. It needed to be released with no intermission. Uh, and a film that coming in close to three hours without an intermission was a big deal in the 70s. I think the big, uh, you know, the big note here was how the film was shot. Gordon Willis, uh, a cinematographer on this thing. What's your sense of how he approached the camera to this film? Well, I mean, he got the nickname the Prince of Darkness for a reason. <laughs> I, I mean, he was a guy, you know, what what people said typically when you were making a movie is if you wanted the image to look darker, you could just uh, you could just print it that way. You could take the image, you could, you know, just just not put as much light through it and and you'd have a darker looking scene or if you wanted it to be brighter you could put more light through it and it would it would be a little brighter um when willis shot his film not just this film but many of his films um he shot it in a way where there's really only one way to print it and uh i mean all of the stuff that's dark there is no definition there so if you brighten up the print there is still nothing there you're just brightening up black and it just gives you nothing so he made it so you can only make it one way and i think that's really smart of a of a cinematographer to say this is the look that i'm going for and it's going to stay that way and uh you know i think a huge part of the reason The Godfather is what it is is because Willis gave it a look that so much defined it. Well, and not just the the look of the the, the um, you know the way he handled light and and you really notice it not just in the darks like in the office you know in the the big office but you notice it in all the outside shots. I mean the you know any shot that is giving you a a sense of place a car going by in front of the hospital. I mean it's all so dark. You feel like you're there. You are straining your eyes to see just as the characters are likely straining their eyes to see as well. It's really wonderful, but also. The color, the color that we we hinted at, at the beginning. I mean, this idea that that he established a color just off of you know hearing him talk about it. He said, you know, this is just this is just a feeling I get when I when I watch this thing. I I kind of feel like it. I feel like this is this is what I want. That the whole thing was originally exposed. Uh, it, it was exposed with perfect color, and it was color timed uh, four points yellow, one point red to give it that sense of yellow, which which antiques the film in a way that makes it feel much more of a place and, and time, and certainly much more homey to Coppola, who, who said, I think, after he saw the first dailies uh, that had been recolored, uh, he, he called Willis and said, thank you, uh, just after watching um, uh, Pacino and, and um, Kay walk out of the best department store, uh, that sequence as they're doing their Christmas shopping. Uh, you know, he said, thank you. I get it. And that defined at least the first two films. The story takes place from 1945 to 1954. And I think what Willis did there with the color, uh, really helped kind of give it that sense. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's too old. You know, it's not like he's color timing it to, you know, give it a sense where it's the middle ages or anything, but there's just enough of that like nostalgic memory. And, and I think that's kind of the look that he, he, uh, you know, imbued in the image with that kind of the way that he color timed it. And I just think it's beautiful. It really is just a a, a powerful looking film. 
Um, what's interesting about Willis is he's also one of these kind of old school filmmakers who really believed that the camera needed to be in a place where it makes sense. So when you're showing something, it should be, be making sense. It's kind of like camera's POV. Um, and he and Coppola um, had a lot of arguments on set because Coppola, like, for example, when when uh, Vito Corleone gets gunned down, Coppola wanted that shot overhead so you could see those oranges spilling all across the road. And and Willis was just furious with him because he's just like, there's no there, whose point of view is that? Why are we up there in the top of the building all of a sudden? And they had a lot of these arguments. I guess it was a, a common occurrence with Coppola because, again, this young upstart filmmaker getting brought on to big, direct this big studio film. All of these people, Gordon Willis, Dean Tavalaris as a production designer, uh, Dick Smith doing hair and makeup, Anna Hill Johnstone doing costumes. All of these big, big people um, really kind of are like talking about this guy. Like, what is this kid doing? This kid doesn't know the first thing about making a movie behind his back when he was making this because he wasn't proven. And, you know, it's yeah. I guess that's one of the way the studios uh, like to kind of, you know, stick it to you. Isn't it funny, uh, you know, moving on to editing also <laughs> like seeing how Coppola works with people. We we talked about how he has many editors who work with him over the course of his pictures. And Apocalypse Now is one of those examples where it's just a bunch of different editors who are thrown at sequences and work at sequences and sometimes he shakes them up and moves them to other sequences and and eventually the film gets cut uh and here uh editing performed by william reynolds and uh, peter zinner primarily uh walter murch post-production consultant reynolds edited the first half of the film zinner the second half of the film what do you make of that I wish that I could. I wish I knew. It's such a strange thing. And I don't know if he did it because he knew Reynolds uh, handled a certain type of storytelling better and Zinner might be have a little more energy for the second half. I I can't figure out uh, why he would do that. But it's an interesting way to go about it, I guess. It makes me wonder, though, if they all had editing meetings together to discuss scenes or uh, or kind of how all that worked. But I don't know. It's it's weird. It feels like a funny kind of evolution of his process of working with editors, you know, that there's this sense he um you know, he's he's just kind of figuring out a, a good way to to shake things up and keep, you know, keep people fresh. This seems like a weird way to do it. Uh, it was a smart way in the end though because I think it was Zinner who brought in the uh during the baptism scene brought in the organ music and up until that organ music was in there um Coppola said you know the scene never worked and and he was frustrated because he was trying to find a way to end the book um by doing something interesting and having all that intercutting going on between the baptism and all of the people you could almost say the baptism in blood for Michael um uh it, it's it's a brilliant way to cut it all together but he said it never was working but then Zinner dropped in that that organ music and all of a sudden he said it all came together so you know I, Maybe that's one of the reasons that Zinner was doing the second half. Who knows? Music, Nino Rota. Oh, controversy. <laughs> we need a stinger. <laughs> the music, because the music is iconic, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it is so iconic, uh, and, and yet controversy. The music, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the score is just beautiful. It's it's so iconic of, of this film, and I mean, you, you sing it, and... Everybody knows exactly what it's from. Or do they? (laughs) Uh, Back in 1958, uh, Nina Rota scored a film called Fortunella, which uses the exact same theme. 
Um, it was a little more upbeat, um, but certainly it's the theme that uh, ends up being the the what the uh, the main theme for this, or the love theme of the Godfather. Um, I think it's definitely done better here. I think that he develops it a lot more here. All through the film, I think there's a lot of interesting use of music. However, uh, it certainly caused some controversy as far as the Oscars go, which uh, we'll talk about here in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, I, Nina Rota, beautiful music, though, uh, overall. Well, you say... <laughs> For both films. You know, I, I have to defend you a little bit here because you say, oh, Nina Rota, I mean, certainly it's the same thing. People, you have to go, it's in the show notes, you have to go listen to it because this is not like Andy saying, oh, you know, John Williams certainly stole this theme from this other piece, uh, you know, for, and, and then it's like one or two bars that maybe sounds reminiscent of, well, it's of like James you know, Horner, Star Wars. Because like, James yeah. Horner is always like, that little four yeah. note thing that James Horner it, has it like 50% exactly. or 90% of his scores exactly but yeah, it's but just a little is, this thing is, this right. is like the whole song the whole song <laughs> in a peppy uh major key and it's very and you know i wonder if there's a if there's somebody out there if you were to hum da, 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 who would say oh i loved fortunella like <laughs> <laughs> you know there's somebody out there who has no godfather association and would actually be able to it is the song uh i was really shocked when you played that for me Shocked and awed. (laughs) So funny. Let's plow into the Oscars. The film did get 11 Oscar nominations. This was, uh, it was the most nominations for any film of 1972. It was nominated and won for only three of them, though. It did win for Best Picture, um, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Marlon Brando, uh, and uh, Best Adapted Screenplay uh, by Puso and Coppola. Huge, uh, huge story, though, uh, circling the Oscars was because Marlon Brando, this was his first nomination in 15 years, um, he did not attend the ceremony, choosing instead to have himself represented by Sachin Littlefeather, a.k.a. Maria Cruz, a Native American California actress who who read her little speech for him, accepting on his behalf. Do you remember the speech? Would you like to hear it? I have it. I would. I'd like you. Would you read it as? (laughs) As Sachin uh, Littlefeather? Yes, would you? I'm going to read it as Maria Cruz playing Sachin Littlefeather. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I've been waiting for this all night. Hello. (laughs) She had a very deep voice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not buying it yet. (laughs) Hello, my name is Sachin Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I am president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, and on television and movie reruns, and also with the recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, in our hearts and our understanding, meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Now, what do you think about that? Certainly controversial at the time. A lot of people were like, you know, if he wanted to uh, to come in and, and do, a, uh, do something like this, he should have just done it in person. Um, some people were like, no, that was great. It was a great way to do it. In the end, I don't think it ended up doing much, um, for him either way. Unfortunately, I also don't think it ended up doing much as far as the Native American community went. Um, so it was just one of those things where it happened, but I think it was a little hollow in the end. Do you think, and 
I'm just spitballing here. Do you think it's because this was not a film about Native Americans <laughs> had any impact on it? Success? You know, I don't know. It's it, God only knows. <laughs> do, you, do you think there was any, what's the word, cognitive dissonance? <laughs> well, there's members of the audience. Been. I'm oh. again just spitballing here. <laughs> Not to there is a plight. I'm sure there there is a plight. I am woefully uneducated. I mean to offend no one. I'm just saying maybe from a public relations perspective there is an explanation. Yeah. It, you know, it's like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio winning for The Revenant and talking about, you know, the environment and everything. I mean, I guess it tied in to a certain extent the fact that they had to switch hemispheres to continue filming because there, the, I think, is a much stronger no connection. Yes, there's a much yeah, stronger I connection. Guess, there. I guess there is. Yeah. I guess there is. Even though it wasn't a film that was about environmental issues or anything, right? <laughs> Bear, I guess, Andy. I, Bear. <laughs> I guess you could argue that it's there. <laughs> but that's a film that you could have seen her say that to. Like he could yes. have had Sachin Littlefeather do that. <laughs> Talking about the plight of the Native American uh, performers, because yes. there were plenty of Native American performers in that film. So I think you're feeling it now. I think you're getting it. <laughs> Marlon Brando, what a load of crap he is. <laughs> All right, finish this awards thing, will you? All right, so the other uh, awards that it did not win, uh, three supporting actor nominations, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino. They all lost to Joel Grey for Cabaret. Uh, fantastic film in its own right. However, I think one of these three should have won. Unfortunately, Pacino did not attend the ceremony. He was also protesting um, for perceived category fraud. I didn't even know that this had happened. But he said that his performance reflected greater screen time than that of his co-star Marlon Brando. And he believed that he should have received the nomination for Best Actor in a Leading Role. So, I Yeah, I've never heard it as uh, referred to as category fraud. Um, Coppola lost to Bob Fosse for Cabaret. That was a huge upset, actually. Bob Fosse was completely dumbfounded because... Coppola had won the DGA award and everything, and everybody was convinced that Coppola was going to win. Costume design lost to Anthony Powell for Travels with My Aunt. Uh, Best sound lost to Robert Knudsen and David Hilliard for Cabaret. Best film editing lost to David Bretherton for Cabaret. And uh, (laughs) we already mentioned Nino Rota. He actually was nominated for Best Original Score, but they actually had to withdraw his music because uh, they deemed it ineligible since he had already been... uh, Uh, he'd been caught reusing his score. That ended up getting replaced by a nomination for Sleuth. And of course, the weird thing is that Charlie Chaplin and uh, and his team ended up winning for his film from 1952, Limelight, um, because uh, apparently the film had not been released in LA until 1972. I don't understand these wacky Academy rules, but somehow, even though it was a 20-year-old film, it hadn't played in LA, so it ended up winning for best score. (laughs) I did not know that. That is a fantastic bit of trivia, Andy. Yeah. 20-year-old film. uh, It's just weird. Of course, I still would say that, you know, Fortinella be damned, the Godfather's score is still probably better than any of the scores. 
And we should be super clear. I am. I. I'm all up in arms about the fact that you know it's it's fraudulent music, but it is his own score. Right. Like he, right. He plagiarized himself, so I totally see how that would happen. I reuse stuff I've created all the time. Uh, I. I have to imagine this was probably a surprise to him at some level. <laughs> Yeah, I would think. Uh, you know, we we talked about the the restoration stuff. I think the restoration is actually a really interesting story. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, the 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 negative. This is you know, the film was so popular that basically they burned through the negative, uh, making all these different prints that they had to crank out to get to all the different theaters, and they essentially ruined the negative of the film, and it was just a mess. That was that uh, w- the way it was put in the um, in in the research is that that you know anytime you make a print is a full contact sport because you are stretching and the risk of damage to the negative is is high and because this film surprised them with how successful it was they ended up making so many more prints that the 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 uh, negative ended up getting worn out so um, they decided to do a, a cleanup what happened apparently is that as soon as uh, DreamWorks was purchased by Paramount in December of 2005, the very first phone call that Steven Spielberg received uh, after he, as he's starting his day uh, at, at Paramount is, hey, this is Francis Ford Coppola. Now that you work over there, could you please dig up the, uh, the original negative and restore this, this stinking series? And so the first call that Spielberg made was to uh, uh, the to the executive team over at Paramount saying, "Hey, I need you to write a big check because this is going to be a costly process, but it's going to be worth it." And the answer was a resounding yes, and that's what got us this absolutely gorgeous restoration that we have available now. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Amen. This is why we support film restoration. Absolutely. How did it? Uh, how did it ultimately do in? The box office, Andy. They're making print after print after this thing. Uh, it's bound to have done well. You know what's so funny about this is they really went into this thinking it was going to be a, a low-budget, small film. Uh, the Godfather's budget started at just $2.5 And then when Coppola came on board, it just went up from there. Um, it varies depending on the source. Uh, so I'm going with the largest amount, which marks it at $7 <laughs> million. I mean, it's like $6.5, $7 million. Yeah. It's not like It's not like huge difference, but... Uh, in the end, it looked like it cost about $7 million, which is about $40 million in today's dollars. Um, the movie had a slow series of premiere releases uh, starting mid-March and then opening wide March 24th, 1972, opening really big. And it held number one at the box office for 12 weeks. All mm. except one week, the eighth week, when Woody Allen's Played Again Sam bumped it to number two for just the one week. Uh, the movie ended up raking in about 133.7 million domestically and another 133.5 million everywhere else, which is about one and a half billion in today's <laughs> dollars. And that doesn't include any of the re-release figures. Uh, this means that The Godfather made more than 38 times its budget and put it at an adjusted profit per finish minute of 8.5 million. For a movie that is two hours and 45 <laughs> minutes long, I would say that is a bit of all right. So where does it put in, put us on the spreadsheet, on the budget spreadsheet? How does it rank in our in the films? Gone with the Wind, we've already said, that's, you know, of the movies that, that made the highest, the most for the adjusted profit per finished minute, that is number one on our list. And Godfather's mm-hmm. number five. It's not far behind. Gone, Gone with the Wind, The Exorcist, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and then The Godfather. So it is wow. way up there. 
Um, if you, however, look at it by, um, instead of adjusted profit per finished minute, but you look at profit uh, per cost, uh, this film is, uh, bumps up a spot to number four. Mad Max, okay. as we said, that still is the most profitable um, on the list, followed by Gone with the Wind, then A Fistful of Dollars, interestingly, oh. and then number four is The Godfather. So All there right. you go. Guess just just out of curiosity, see if you can guess what's number five on the profit per cost list. After the Godfather, <laughs> it's the Blob. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Yep, independent, uh, uh, low budget horror movies. Love yeah, them. there you go. Well, I think it's probably time, Andy. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com/slash the next reel. Uh, and here we go. I, uh, I like I told you in the beginning, Andy. I ranked this on my own list, and it surprised me. Uh, I'm hoping this is going to surprise us uh, and and give us a little shake up for the first time in a long time. Straight to the bottom. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's the contrarian vote. <laughs> oh, that's right. First up, The Godfather or The Road Warrior. Godfather, please. Godfather for me. The Godfather or The Dish. The Godfather, please. Godfather for me. Yes, indeed. The Godfather. Oh, this is great. A little Coppola on <laughs> Coppola action. Godfather Apocalypse Now. The Godfather, please. Godfather for me. The Godfather or Black Hawk Down. The Godfather for me, please. I was wondering. Okay, yes. No, Godfather for me, too. Oh, man. The Godfather or Mad Max Fury Road. It's the Godfather all the way. Godfather it is. The Godfather, oh my goodness, or Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to go to the mat on this one. I, I'm going to say The Godfather, Pete. You are? Yeah. Andy? I know. Lest I remind you, Dr. Strangelove is now your favorite film in the world ever uh, in the history of everything uh, of photographic elements. Amen. I, I've been debating on that, and it's pretty close. It's pretty close to the top. I haven't. It's hard. It's hard when you get above a certain number to, you know, really. You're, it's it's difficult. So I haven't quite yeah, gotten no, it I there yet. So it's still I the Godfather okay. for me. All right. All right. So, so it's Godfather for to me, too. I, I thought we were going to go to the mat. All right. It's Godfather for me, too. The Godfather or Mr. Smith goes to Washington. A little, uh, a little crime or a little justice. Which way are you going? <laughs> I'm all black hat, baby. The Godfather for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. Pete. Uh-huh. The Godfather or Network. Okay. Yeah, this was my problem. This is why I am so glad we do this, and this is, this is exactly the conundrum I ran into on my own list. Uh, right now, as it sits, Network is number one on my list, and The Godfather is number two. I am deeply torn asunder about that decision. I am way more concerned about that decision than anything else I should be more concerned about <laughs> in my life today. I had such a fantastic connection with this film. This is a, to me, it is just a perfect film. And it's one that I, it, it, it's, it exists in such a space for me that it is perfect in isolation and it is made more perfect as part of the series. But it can live perfectly in both spaces, and that right. is unique. I don't know what to do. Where do you stand? It's the Godfather for me, man. It's the Godfather. It is. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Network is not as high on my list as it is on your list. I mean, it's high, but yeah. but I mean, 
you know, it if, has if, network has been number into, one on my list for a long time. Oh, I know, but if I had run into a different film, uh, then I might be uh, having more of a more of a struggle. Like here. what? But, what? Uh, what is that struggle? What would that have been? Well, Brazil. Oh yeah. Jaws. Oh, I I I ranked Godfather ahead of Jaws. That hit for me. Yeah, I I hear you, but uh, I'd put Jaws up seven. Raiders of the Lost Ark. These are all films that I would put above The Godfather. I did not. I did not but, put those. I actually ranked many of those against The Godfather, and it won. And it won. Yeah. This is my struggle. I'm going to go with you on this, Andy. We have a new number one. Look at that, Pete. We have a new number one. That's It's been a long time. It has Andy. been a very long time. Very long time. I'm wow. curious to see where the rest of the series goes because uh, you know there's there are big debates: The Godfather or The Godfather Part Two, which is really the better of the two films or better of the series, really. But nobody says it's Godfather Part Three, so I mean, who? Are no, we no, nobody, <laughs> nobody says that. Uh, May third, two thousand thirteen, Network hit number one. It has been number one since May twenty thirteen. Wow, that's almost crazy. Almost three and a half years. How about uh, how about your letterbox? Three stars, three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I uh, give it a one yeah. and a half star. No, it's, t- <laughs> it's a t- I want to be like the Amazon reviewers, Pete. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, the DVD was broken. Right, one star. <laughs> it's five star. Easy. Absolutely easy five star film for me. I'm curious how uh, you know. I know some people who haven't seen this, uh, you know, at the right times in their life, it doesn't hit them well. They're like, "Why do people love this so much?" So you know, I, I'm always curious about that. And definitely, if any of our listeners are those people, we certainly would love to hear from you. What is it about this film that uh, that doesn't really click, or or why is it something that you don't think is as great? But um, definitely for Pete and I, we love it. That's the truth. I think that's uh, I think that's about it. So I, obviously, we're doing the Godfather series. So if I ask you where we go from here, uh, you, I imagine a predictable response. Yes, we're going to be uh, jumping into we're jumping in both directions in the storyline. We're going to be jumping uh, a few years forward to uh, to follow um, Michael Corleone and his family. But we're also going to be jumping backward to look at his father when he was a young man. Um, fascinating element of Godfather Part 2. So very much looking forward to that next week. And me too. Until then, I gotta go to bed. What, you going to bed? Pete, you're gonna be sleeping with the fishes. Amazon giveth, Andy. Oh, as Amazon always doeth. <laughs> this was maybe the most fun uh, that uh, we've had looking at reviews. This was hard there. to choose. <laughs> it was really hard to choose. What uh, what nugget did you come up with? I was tempted to do the Godfather haiku. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's even a haiku. Oh, but I think I'll go with Dr. Connie, who says, uh, the best movie I ever hated. So sorry, this film is highly acclaimed and probably very good, but I could not get behind it. The wedding scene was interminable. 
just go watch uh, the Deer Hunter, Doctor Connie. <laughs> Please, I, I really don't like noir, and I simply couldn't find the thread in all those people who kept getting killed. Then some gorgeous horse gets its head severed and placed in a bed with a director who wouldn't give some family member a starring role. Yuck! I gave up. Just not my kind of movie, but I guess it's a classic. Whatever. Okay, what are the responses? Uh, as for my value in your rating, a four-star rating for Gossip Girl and a one-star rating for The Godfather tells me all I need to know. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about Gossip Girl. Not a word. But still. Yeah. Mine uh, mine comes by, uh, by way of L on September 3rd, 2016, who also offers it a one-star review. <laughs> it says... God made no appearance. <laughs> I, I I can't believe that after <laughs> after forty years, I never made a connection. <laughs> that God so never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> the Godfather. Oh dear. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.